Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. November 6th, 2015 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and if you have gone over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com and checked out the program notes for today's show, and you are still here and alive kudos to you. This is probably the longest list that I've ever posted, and I do think my brain is maybe exploding. We'll see if we can get through all of this today. The title is America's Culture of Censorship, and as you'll see, a lot of the stories are going to be along that theme of censorship, perhaps more of the stories than you actually think. I am very sorry that I did miss last week talking to all of you, um, I don't think it would have been a good idea given that I was on Benadryl for about six days in a row, and that was not a good way to be. I'm happy I am no longer on Benadryl, so I have that. I don't have that excuse. So if I make mistakes here this morning, if I can't find a word or whatever, I have absolutely no excuse because I've been off Benadryl since Tuesday afternoon or so. Um, I was taking an antibiotic, because, and I had to have it intravenously, and I was having Benadryl to stave off any sort of reaction to the antibiotic. I'm not exactly even sure that it was necessary, but they were making me do it. So I said, okay, I'm not going to argue. I'll just do my thing and get this infection gone. I think it's gone. And that means that I think I'm going to be able to finally have the surgery to fix that weird kidney issue that I've bored you guys with for probably months now because I've been waiting for months to get this surgery done. So cross fingers, I have to have another test to make sure that the infection is gone. But if everything goes well, I will be able to have my surgery. And then I will keep all of you posted about that because I'll probably have to miss one show uh, around that time as well to recover. So that's my health issue. But thank you for coming back today and joining me for this long list of topics. So let's go over there. I went ahead at the top of the program notes and just gave you a link to George Orwell's 1984 
just in case you need a reminder of the sort of danger of a totalitarian government that controls all thoughts and expression to the extent possible, which is a large extent if they really have their mind to it. But the first actual story over there is a story that the New York Times did. Sometimes they do this. They'll have a kind of contentious issue, and they have it under their opinion pages, Room for Debate feature. And this one is titled, When a Generation Becomes Less Tolerant of Free Speech. And what they're referring to in this piece is, of course, all of the trigger warnings on campus and, in general, the fact that the current generation of college-aged kids is welcoming of things like trigger warnings that will protect their sensibilities from being offended. Uh, the, the article goes like it says this. It says, free speech and the willingness to discuss uncomfortable ideas is under threat on college campuses where trigger warnings and safe spaces are becoming increasingly common. Even President Obama has raised concerns about university students being, quote, coddled and protected from different points of view. So you know if Obama asks, right? Uh, it says, recently a provocative essay in a Wesleyan University student newspaper nearly led to the demise of a 150-year-old publication. So this is a very contentious issue. And then they have six different commentators that they've asked to speak about. The most interesting to me is Eugene Volokh over at UCLA. You may have remembered him post-Garland. He went on Megyn Kelly's show on Fox News and was really, really excellent on the topic of free speech and the necessity to allow even speech that we hate, that is blasphemous, that is super offensive, that it's very important to protect this. So let me give you a little bit of Eugene Volokh's response to this issue about free speech disappearing from campus. He says, the Supreme Court's decision protect the freedom to express even the thought that we hate, including so-called discriminatory viewpoints expressed by student groups at public universities. So wrote Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, no stranger to fights for equality, but also a strong supporter of the freedom of speech. This came in her majority opinion in Christian Legal Society versus Martinez, 2010, but the dissenters agreed on this. And he says, and the reason for this understanding of the First Amendment is clear. As the court wrote in a 1972 college student speech case, quoting Justice Hugo Black, First Amendment protection, quote, must be accorded to the ideas we hate, or sooner or later they will be denied to the ideas we cherish. First Amendment protection must be accorded to the ideas we hate, or sooner or later they will be denied to the ideas we cherish. Uh, Eugene continues, one way that speech restrictions often grow is through what I call censorship envy. Say one group wins a ban on speech that it finds offensive. It's human nature for other groups to then ask, what about speech that offends us? harsh criticism of Israel or of certain religious belief systems or of abortion or of America. And then these groups that have you know, censorship envy, they ask this, says Eugene. They ask, are we second-class citizens whose feelings can be insulted with impunity while other groups are protected? Are we weaklings who lack the power or status that others have used to suppress the speech they hate? And if we're not second-class weaklings, we demand the same quote-unquote protection 
from speech that offends us. That's censorship envy, and it's a powerful force supporting the growth of speech restrictions at universities and elsewhere. Unfortunately, he says, we're seeing many at universities, including student groups, administrators, and even the Federal Department of Education, trying to suppress student speech. And he says again and again and again and again, and I urge you to go to the article, because in each of these agains, and he has seven of them, he has a link to a different instance of student groups, administrators, and the Federal Department of Education trying to suppress student speech. And he says, and the list could go on. So there are seven examples he gives you there, and it's not exhaustive. He says, oddly, many of these restrictions come from political groups that see themselves as outsiders fighting the powerful. And he says, if that's really so, how can they give government extra censorship powers that can so easily be used against future quote-unquote progressives like them. He says, Justice Ginsburg has seen how many civil rights movements succeeded in America, in large part because of their speech and the constitutional protection for such speech. Future movements from all political positions need that protection, and they won't get it if colleges teach students the habits of censorship rather than of freedom. And I say bravo for Eugene. He is Excellent, excellent. Of course, he's a pretty much world-renowned scholar on free speech out of UCLA Law School. Um, You know, censorship, of course, in its true form is only an act of government. The reason that I titled today's show America's Culture of Censorship is because it is dangerous not only if we have government stepping in, but also if we have a population that thinks it is morally good to either self-censor or to use even whatever influence we have privately to try to shut other people down you know, and, and modify their speech as well. If we generally are engaging in self-censorship or we are encouraging others to just tone it down and and don't offend anybody and get too worried about these things, we are literally going to cut off our process of thought that we need to get at the truth. I mean, we are human beings. We gain our knowledge by looking at the world and processing it. There are a number of contentious issues out there that, and I would say reasonable people can very much disagree. Um, What exactly is going on with climate change We have a 97% majority who's trying to say that human beings are evil and they're, you know, destroying the planet and doom and gloom is going to surely follow in short order. And then we have a number of people putting out very convincing arguments that, no, this is not exactly the case. We have other people who are saying, well, maybe human beings are changing the climate, but nonetheless, this is the best thing for human beings and you can't get around that. So that's a few positions on one. What about gun control? What about immigration, particularly among objectivists? There's been a, you know, kind of very, very vigorous debate about that issue. What is the ideal immigration policy either now or in a truly free society? In order to get at the truth of issues, we need to allow everybody to express all of their ideas in whatever form they wish. We we don't want them to, quote, censor themselves for fear of offending, etc. And yet this is exactly the thing that's being called for. 
uh, you know, professors in the University of California system were told recently, I think they've stepped back on this, but they were, you know, the UC system was trying to tell professors in their system that they needed to give trigger warnings and avoid certain language when they were expressing ideas in order to avoid, quote, offending students. And, you know, I, I agree that uh, parents, any good parent, should protect their children from being exposed to things that are inappropriate too early. And, of course, everybody has the freedom to not click on some horrible thing that they don't want to read or see or anything else. But in terms of, you know, people as adults saying, okay, we have to be protected all the time and we don't want to be offended, sometimes you need to be offended in order to see fully what the point of view of the other side is. And you need to be able to address and express why something offends you and make a case for it. And you're not going to be able to do that in any, uh, you know, developed good way if you are you know, being protected all the time. There are a couple other commentators here, uh, one who tries to say, well, we're simply seeing a new definition of free speech. They're just having a conversation about the, quote, boundaries of free speech. And as Ankar Gatte has so wonderfully explained on Jerome Brooks' show a while back, free speech is an absolute. It has no boundaries. Unless someone is actually inciting violence through speech, then that's a speech act that you could say is criminal. Otherwise, if they're expressing ideas, that needs to be left completely free. Um, and I'm definitely concerned that not only do we have government stepping in and limiting speech in dangerous ways, and we'll talk about some examples here, but I'm concerned about any sort of culture among an entire generation of college students that it's good to censor yourself, to always think about issuing trigger warnings and stuff. You're going to hamper your thought process if you do that. You're going to prevent people from hearing all sides of a debate and actually getting at the truth and being able to defend our, their ideas against the best counterarguments that there are. So it, it is crucial. If our goal is to learn truth about the world, and we need to do that in order to survive as human beings. We must learn the truth about the world. we got to know what's up with this global warming, for example, um, because there are different paths we can go down, and one of them is going to be good for human life and one is not. We need to allow everybody to express their point of view in an unfettered way. Uh, there's another commentator, a recent college graduate, who says that millennials are just, they are creating a more inclusive and just world. Students, she says, are not avoiding or silencing difficult conversations. They're learning to face them in ways that are academically rigorous and sensitive to the needs of everyone in the room. So she's basically saying, uh, yes, it's fine to deem certain language off limits. I heard somebody say recently that hard work, like if you describe somebody as a hard worker, then that's offensive because it connotes slavery or something. Um, I think it's that woman on MSNBC. This is the kind of stuff where you say, okay, I'm going to have people questioning their own minds. If I put this this way, is it going to, quote, offend somebody, regardless of whether that is the proper concept and word to use? And again, I go back to 1984. In 1984, 
they kept refining the accepted vocabulary newspeak, and they wanted to make sure that only the bureaucratically approved language could be used, even if, of course, there were much more concise, eloquent, and precise ways to express exactly the thought that you wanted to express. So I say BS to this, and I say bravo to Eugene Volokh. I'm very glad that he is out there and uh, that New York Times tapped him for that. Stuart over here in the chat room says, do you remember Ayn Rand's essay from 1965, The Cashing in the Student Rebellion? Isn't all of this insanity on campus today, including the trigger warnings, the logical result of the trends Rand discussed in 1965? Yeah. And he says, he says, the woman who was against hard work is Melissa Harris Perry, who became famous saying that children don't belong to their parents, but do belong to the community. Yes, of course, it fits right in with that. You know, but but the idea, and you know who did a, an excellent rebuttal of that, by the way? If you go to Mike Rowe, R-O-W-E, Mike Rowe's page on Facebook, I think he did a really nice rebuttal of her comment about that, about hard work. Um, so that was one New York Times piece in the last week on this topic. Here's another. Can you tell? I've got my subscription over at New York Times now. Academia's Rejection of Diversity. This is from October 30th, David Brooks. Um, I'm wondering if I no, I didn't obviously talk about this last week because I didn't have a show. I probably would have wanted to. But um, he is in here talking about the fact that a number of social psychologists did a study of the actual political views of people in behavioral and brain scientists. And the authors of this study that he's talking about show that for every politically conservative social psychologist in academia, there are about 14 liberal social psychologists. So can you imagine, 1 to 14. Now, if you have one kind of in each department around, really you could say all you have to have is one who's got the right ideas. And it's not that politically conservative people are necessarily going to have the right ideas, but insofar as you know, conservative political ideas are part of an entire philosophy and worldview, and the person has any, you know, resemblance of a unified philosophy, you would want to see how these views influence other views in social psychology, behavioral and brain sciences. And certainly it's it's alarming that it is so slanted. And from what I've heard in the past, statistics in other humanities types departments are similar that you know this 1 to 14 ratio is not uncommon and sometimes the one also includes so-called libertarians which is a a broad classification within academia uh, why the imbalance says brooks the research, researchers found evidence of discrimination and hostility within academia toward conservative researchers and their viewpoints end quote now again not all universities are public so you couldn't say that this was actually censorship in the true sense in terms of government coming in and mandating this. But what you have among academics, particularly in the humanities, is a culture that accepts granting positions in universities, teaching positions that are going to influence all of these kids that we just talked about in the last story, granting those positions only to those who have the so-called right ideas, which means basically they're leftists. So, in any event, um, yeah, we've got this culture 
of censorship. And, and it is dangerous, and people are starting to highlight it. And kudos to the New York Times for publishing that as well. A friend of mine on Facebook is the one who posted this next story. And I hadn't heard of this particular uh, outlet, scienceblogs.com, posted by ORAC on November 5th. Um, This guy, uh, this author, he styles himself a science advocate. And in this post that I linked you to, again, go to don'tletitgo.com and you can see everything I'm talking about here. Um, He is talking about a science advocate who I guess is more well-known than he, this guy, Oric. His name is Kevin Folta. And Kevin Folta has been a defender of GMO foods. And what we just, what we learn here is that Folta has decided basically to give up, you know, battling on this front at all. Um, he says, hi, everybody, I'll keep it short. The attacks are relentless. I'm under a lot of pressure on many fronts. I'm taking the opportunity to disappear from public visibility and focus on my lab and my students. It has been a challenging time. I appreciate the support. I'm grateful for your wishes, but this battle is vicious and one-sided, and I think I'm well-served bowing out of the public science conversation for the foreseeable future. And he says, thank you. And this blogger uh, who I linked to, this uh, Oric, he gives examples of people who have talked about vaccinations, who have talked about climate change on the side that I don't necessarily agree with, who have talked about GMO and all sorts of other types of contentious issues, who have been doxxed, means you know their address has been publicized out there, their home addresses, they have been threatened. Um, if these people have academic positions. Oh, in the chat room, Stuart says, ORAC is David, Dr. David Gorski. Thanks, Stuart, for helping me out with that. Um, so Dr. David Gorski is the one who's publishing this, um, but he's talking about Kevin Fulta, who's having to basically leave public life and give up defending science. But um, Gorski is talking about people who uh, defend science in all different areas and have been harassed and threatened and everything else. And one technique that has been used recently and has been used on FOLTA is for these groups, these anti-science groups, to go to a university and do a Freedom of Information Act request requesting all emails to and from the person in question that have to do with a subject in question. So, for example, GMO foods. And they did that to this guy, Folta. And, of course, what they do is they try to get any fragment of any email that they can take out of context and distort and show that this guy is a biased person who's on the dole of the big bad corporations and blah, blah, blah. Um, So that's what's been done to him. Uh, We know that that's been done to him. But Gorski speculates about other things that may have happened. He may have been getting pressure from higher-ups in the administration of his university. Uh, He may have been threatened with a loss of a particular chair that he held because whereas if you have tenure, you can't actually be fired from the faculty for something like, you know, promoting GMO foods or whatever. Um, You can uh, be fired from a chair position or, you know, a dean of a certain school or whatever because the overall president of the university, you serve at the pleasure of that person in, you know, a particular administrative position. So there may have been an administrative position 
that he holds that he's been threatened with having to give up. I think he's a dean or a chair of, of some department. Um, again, it's speculation, but here is the guy saying that when he's out there expressing his point of view, promoting the scientific perspective on GMO, he is being harassed and threatened to such an extent that he decided as a personal decision that he's just bowing out of the public limelight. And, you know, everybody's got to make that decision. Yes, he's on the right side of the fight. It's a worthwhile cause. It is good for people to keep out there promoting science, promoting science. But they don't have to. They don't have to be on the front lines of that battle, particularly at a high personal cost. So, you know, uh, uh, Gorski here says that he respects Fulta's decision, but laments it as well. And and I think everybody should. Um, We need, again, to have vigorous debate, all viewpoints expressed, and then everybody can learn to examine the arguments of everyone else and decide how, you know, what you believe and what the argument and justification is for that belief. This is crucial if we're going to progress in knowledge and uh, in society, not just in science, but in everywhere else. I'm going to go ahead and take a call. Hi, who's this? Hello? I'm not hearing anything. I should be hearing. Can you hear me? Oh, now I can hear you. Good, good. I'm glad. Okay. I thought I had a. I thought I had an equipment malfunction. So great. No worries. This is Debbie. Yes, it is. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, so I just uh, had to comment on this issue of the man who has decided to withdraw from a public defense of science. Um. I wonder about the morality of that. I mean, I certainly sympathize with it. But to me, it almost seems like something along the lines of negotiating with terrorists. Because Mm, they have succeeded. I see this almost as a form of maybe you could call it soft terrorism, in that they're not physically threatening to cut off someone's head or blow up a building. But they are terrorizing. I, I understand that sometimes they are getting physical threats as well, though. So they are yeah, sometimes I, I actually. Yeah, I that. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, and if you reward them by withdrawing, I mean, I, I almost think um, perhaps at the point where they start attacking and threatening in the way that they have been with this man, there might be a moral obligation not to withdraw because at that point you're sending the message that these tactics will be rewarded and encouraging more of them. Right. So I'm I'm kind of concerned. What what do you think about that? Well, so then, I mean, we don't know, of course, all of the details. Gorski is kind of speculating as to all the different things that might have, you know, befallen this poor guy. But, you know, what if he doesn't have the institutional backing? Basically, I mean, what should happen is we should have a police force and government who is ready to go ahead and physically defend people like this man. And today we simply don't, right? I mean, we have a government, if anything, 
that is often opposed to the, the sorts of defense that he's doing. And it's not that they are directly censoring, but they're certainly not jumping in to defend people who speak in ways that our government disagrees with, right? That's correct. And in fact, I've even heard, I haven't got all the details yet because I haven't heard this episode of Power Hour, but Alex Epstein had a guest on Power Hour recently who was talking about someone, presumably in the government, who is looking into the possibility of prosecuting think tanks or organizations that defend that um, take a position against that global warming is. Oh right, yeah. I've got I've got a few stories. I've got them. I've got a few of those stories coming up next. Actually, Exxon Mobil right. and others are going to be prosecuted. Using the RICO Act to prosecute them. Uh, so it's certainly the case that the government is not sympathetic and may not defend someone in that position. But I just think I don't see how it gets anything but worse. If someone gives up at that point and rewards this behavior, um, I don't know. I mean, I certainly sympathize with the guy, and I'm not just saying I want to come out and condemn him. Uh, he's not the bad guy here, but I'm really disturbed by the idea that people are going to let the bad guys win. No, I know. But this this is the thing, too, is that, you know, it used to be in our country that if you went out there and you spoke, you know, things that were controversial, um, you know, you put a whole bunch of controversial things out there, the worst that you would get is ridicule and, you know, people would avoid you, boycott you, et cetera. But now it's getting really vicious and sometimes physical where yeah. you're actually you're actually you know you're you're just some intellectual or some artist or something and suddenly you're on the front lines of a a physical battle that's how you find yourself yeah. and and you've never enlisted to do that you know it's 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 really interesting and then the question is at what point do you blame someone for saying look when it gets this crazy this is not what i feel like i'm capable of doing or able to do, and the people who are supposed to be doing their jobs of physically defending me are not doing it. Well, the founding fathers said at no point is that acceptable, and we're going to fight, kill, and die to defend our rights. Right. Not to be persecuted and oppressed. Our lives, and, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Yes. Right. That the, pe- the country exists because of people who said no, and... Uh, so I guess um kind of hard to say that one whose livelihood, yes, is being threatened and uh, maybe even is under physical threat, isn't at least in a better position than they were going to right. war. And, right. And some of them did die a horrible death. No, I mean, there's and there's a lot of stories of how many of them died penniless and everything else. Um, yeah. so I, I, I definitely understand that. I, I mean, it could be, you know, again, in general, our society has kind of lost sight of the need to defend perhaps even physically these rights. 
mm-hmm. as as individuals. You know, we've we've had the relative luxury of of leaving defense to police and to military. And maybe we just don't have that in this culture because our culture has gotten so bad. Right. Yeah. So, um, I'm just going to think about it more, but I'm going to do the right thing. Right. Um, Just Gene in the chat room is saying his withdrawal is certainly disappointing, but I think he has the right to make the decision he deems is best for his life. Now, not a question of right. Yeah, it's not a question of right, right? He has he has the right to do it, certainly. But then the question is, how do we evaluate it on a moral level in terms of, you know, what is going to be needed to turn this culture around to one in which people like him are free to express their ideas, right? Yeah. So, uh, so we are we are going to talk. Uh, some about the Exxon Mobil case. Uh, there's a connection to Hillary Clinton in this Exxon Mobil probe. I don't know if you saw that. No, I hadn't seen that. I really hadn't read too much about it, um, and I only heard the very beginning of Alex's podcast, so I don't know the details. Didn't know well, she was involved, but uh, he, um, I was going to say he may he may have recorded the podcast before the connection was published. This is an article from November 2nd at Free Beacon and it says that Hillary Clinton is calling for a federal investigation of ExxonMobil's climate change activities. And this has happened just months after the company neglected to renew its sponsorship of the Clinton Global Initiative annual meeting. So basically they're saying that these two events are connected and that, you know, a number of these companies like ExxonMobil and others were supporting Clinton's global initiative, even though they themselves don't believe in the, you know, that, you know, horrible negative effects that everybody talks about, the alarmist uh, version Uh of of climate change. Uh, Even though they don't, they've nonetheless given all sorts of money to Clinton and now if they dare to withdraw money from Hillary Clinton she calls for a federal investigation of them why because huh. of ideas that they put out there well good for them for withdrawing that support definitely definitely I but now you know they're going to they're going to spend they're probably going to spend even more on lawyers because of this yeah. and i i definitely be interested to listen to Alex's podcast to see you know what technical legal charges are involved and what the prognosis is and everything else. But it is horrible. It is a horrible development for our country that we have politicians running for president who call for, you know, investigations of oil companies just because of the view that they promote on a contentious issue of climate change. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that 97% number has been completely debunked. It is not the case that 97% of scientists agree that there is catastrophic anthropogenic global warming. 97% of papers that some tax uh, editorialist looks over had some mention to the effect that there's a greenhouse effect or you know, something along those lines. And uh, he took liberties with reporting. It's nowhere near 97% of scientists who think that there's catastrophic anthropogenic global warming. It's 
FYI. Alex well, brings that down in the moral case for fossil fuels, if anyone's right. interested. Yeah. And, and, and even so, you know, you've got that flunky president of the Sierra Club still touting that statistic right in front of the Senate and everything and, and getting Absolutely. away with it. Absolutely. Well, these people are liars. Absolutely liars. Thank you. And anything else, Debbie, before I go on to my vast list of crazy, ambitious program notes? No, I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of it. So. Okay, great. Great. Thanks for calling, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, let's get back to the list. So, yeah, as I said, Hillary is tied to this, so it becomes political. You would think that given the news about Hillary Clinton that her campaign would be toast by now. Um, I do have actually another one, uh, ExxonMobil investigated for possible climate change lies by New York Attorney General. In, in a proper society, company lied about something, then you'd say, okay, there is a real instance of fraud. But here, this is a contentious issue about which academics disagree. So the idea that you are committing fraud by taking one position versus the other on some issue that is very much open to debate and challenged is horrible. We have the government trying to enforce its view on this issue by putting pressure on the few people who have the resources to actually get a different point of view out there, right? These are the oil companies. And as I understand, several of the oil companies are under pressure for so-called climate change lies. How dare you promote using your money, anything other than the receive view, in other words, 1984. But yeah, I do think Hillary Clinton's campaign, any rational world would be done right now. Just today, Washington Free Beacon, uh, Free Beacon, broke this story. Headline is, Clinton signed NDA, non-disclosure agreement, laying out criminal penalties for mishandling of classified info. And if you go and look at the story, the free beacon who got a copy of the NDA through a Freedom of Information Act request uh, by another outlet, who was it who shared it? Competitive Enterprise Institute did the Freedom of Information Act request, open records request, and then shared this agreement with the Washington Free Beacon. And it turns out in the agreement, Clinton has the responsibility to determine whether the material in the particular communication is classified or not, that she would, under the wording of the agreement, not be able to get away with the idea that, oh, it wasn't labeled classified, so therefore it wouldn't count. She takes responsibility per the agreement that she signed to determine whether the material is classified or not. And as the Beacon reports, it has been acknowledged there are at least two emails that she mishandled. So um, what's going to happen to her? In a rational society, her campaign would be done and we would see criminal proceedings being commenced. I don't know if she'd wind up in prison. Everybody's got the orange jumpsuit thing going on. But she would be investigated and potentially prosecuted. What else do we have here? So, oh, and by the way, in terms of good news for oil, it could be, you know, that our government just can't stand the idea that the oil companies can be left free and not worrying about things, that we can have decent oil prices for a change, decent prices at the pump. 
there's a story out this week, and thanks to Rob Abiera for it. It says there is enough oil for decades with new exploration technology, according to British Petroleum. Advances in oil and glass, and excuse me, oil and gas exploration technology have ensured the world is no longer at risk of running out of resources. BP said on Monday, and this was published on November 3rd, so this is just this week. It says thanks to investment into supercomputers, robotics, and the use of chemicals to extract the maximum from available reservoirs, the accessible oil and gas reserves will almost double by 2050. It says, together with the development of renewable resources and nuclear power, the world will thus have more than 20 times the amount of energy it needs to cover its consumption despite growing demand. This is the most awesome news ever for the entire industry. And then in the same week, we get the idea that legal pressure and lawsuits and all the expense and hassle of litigation is being foisted on these companies because they're putting this doomsday scenario about there about climate change. If you want to preserve a you know perfect human climate for yourself, right? the climate that we live in, you need energy to do it. And Alex Epstein is excellent on this topic, and I do recommend his book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. But where are we going right now? You know, this idea, we can't rejoice about this. In fact, we have to, you know, chastise and punish and litigate against these oil companies because they dare put out a, you know, particular view about climate change. We are equipped to deal with whatever climate change we see. Why? Because we have plenty of energy that we can use to give ourselves beautiful air-conditioned or heated environments as the need comes out there. So that's at least the good news. I do have another caller that I'm going to go ahead and take over here. Actually, I have a couple callers. I thought I still had Debbie on the line. Let me grab one of them. Hi, who's this? This is Brian calling. Brian, so I think you're a first-time caller, right? I am. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just want to add some comments to what you were saying. Um, you know, I, I think um, if you want to have a, uh, a world with a growing population, you have to have modern energy production. And I shudder to think how many people could exist on this earth if we didn't have modern energy production. Uh, if we believed in this, if, if the world went ahead with this Malthusian global warming, uh, the world population would probably be dramatically reduced from 6 to 7 billion people to half that or maybe quite a bit less. And when I hear people talking about climate change and all the external costs of it, I always think, well, what would the external costs be if we implemented a carbon tax and energy prices went up dramatically? What would the external costs be uh, on, a fa- on, on a family you know, that's below or right at or, or barely above the poverty level? You know, or what, what would right. what would happen to people that wouldn't be able to afford energy in the winter? I mean, you'd have people freezing to death. Um, well, and know, then the in, the, mark- in the summers, in the summers, in some places, we have people dying because you know the temperatures are well over a hundred, and they have frail health, and they can't take the heat either. So either way, and you know, the thing is, during the medieval period of warming around 1100 AD, there was climate change more significant than anything. Don't we seen right now? We had an ice age in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. We certainly don't have an ice age right now. And I live um, outside of Philadelphia, and 
the area I live in 20, 30,000 years ago was covered in a sheet of ice. So the climate right. has always uh, been changing. Climate change is not a new phenomenon. Climate change occurred before we had, you know, uh, we're using coal or, um, or, or natural gas or oil for sources of energy before we had nuclear power. And the climate changed when there were but a fraction of the amount of people on Earth as we have now. The climate's changed whether we've had 10 million people on Earth or 100 million or a billion or 3 billion or 6 or 7 billion. But if you want to go back to a world where, you know, 2 to 3 billion people exist or a billion people, then go right ahead with this climate change agenda and don't allow people to have a modern energy production. Because if you go back to the Dark Ages, uh, you would significantly reduce the world's population. I mean, it would essentially be de facto genocide on a scale that even Hitler couldn't have imagined. Right, right. And, and I mean, there's a couple other stories along these lines this week. I mean, first of all, we have, again, our government being willing to put legal pressure on ExxonMobil in the same week that NASA is releasing data saying that the Antarctic ice sheets that they said were going to, you know, decrease and melt into the ocean and everything else because of global warming, that the ice is actually increasing. So who knows? We might be going into an ice age. You never know. Remember in the 70s they were saying we were going to have global cooling? And oh, how horrible, right? Um, Uh, Remember uh, they were calling him Jimmy Cardigan because he wore the cardigan sweater? Um, You know, it's just an absurd crackpot dangerous theory and a lot of these people that subscribe to it whether they realize it or not they're subscribing to a theory um which would bring the world back into the dark ages and they don't understand that you know modern technology and industrialization made it possible for the world's population to grow now i happen to think people living and prospering is a good thing i don't think human human being and the human race is the enemy here. But it seems that a lot of people think that way. And the policies they would want to promote, again, you know, would, would equate to de facto genocide. You know, and you look at places like Africa and the third world, they need infrastructure, they need roads, bridges, they need schools, they need modern energy production. Those are right. the kinds of things that are going to cure starvation in the third world and allow people to live longer and have a better standard of living and have lower infant mortality rates. And those are all the things that we have in the Western world. So, you know, it's just, it's a very, um, and I'm not a libertarian, but you know, this, it's the way I see it. If you want to, again, either human beings are wealth and human beings are resources and, you know, resources can be used for the betterment of mankind or, you know, human beings are the enemy and humans using resources is always going to have a bad outcome. And I know which side of the equation I fall on and I know which kind of a world I want to live in. Well, but how about also human beings can exist for the betterment of themselves so long as they're not violating anybody else's rights. I mean, that's where I am. So, um, I want everybody to be able to use energy in order to do the things that make them happy and able to sustain their own lives, again, so long as they're not violating anybody else's rights. So you you disagree with libertarianism, as you call it. Why? What what would you say your main disagreement is? I, I, I don't know that, that I have one disagreement. I just, um, as somebody who's been around a lot of libertarians and got excited about Ron Paul in 2008, you know, there were, there were mm. things that I liked, okay. especially compared to the establishment. But I just don't think that libertarianism as such is, 
is you know real, real realistic and achievable. I don't think you're ever going to have a world where you, you have um, basically no well, libertarians. I don't think would say they want no government, but you know the, I don't think that kind of a world is ever going to realistically exist. I yeah, think I mean some regulate. some libertarians, some libertarians are self-described anarchists, but I'm actually not a libertarian, so I subscribe to Rand's philosophy, and Rand has, of course, influenced a lot of libertarians and also some conservatives, but she is a strong believer in the good that is government if government's functions are limited to their proper function where you've got police, courts, and military, that we need those, that those are indispensable for a peaceful, truly human existence where we can all live in society and trade with each other and specialize and do the thing that appeals to us and trade with other people, you know, to help support our lives. None of that's going to happen without government, not in the long run, right? Yeah, and and I, I do favor, when possible, less government, but I, I do think there, there's a role for it. I, I would use this as an, exa- an example of a disagreement I've had with a lot of free traders. I remember meeting Thomas Woods at a Ron Paul. Um, uh, they had a campaign for liberty convention uh, years ago and arguing with him, well, debating with him, not arguing with him about free trade. And I think free trade in the classroom um, academically is a no-brainer, but in the real world, I don't think the conditions exist such that free trade uh, is the rising tide that lifts all boats and it has the benefits that are, that are ascribed to it. And you look at an example today, you know, every time we've had trade agreements with other countries, what happens is, you know, we lower our trade and tariff barriers and other countries don't reciprocate. You can go all the way back right. to the trade agreement with Europe in the early right. 60s. And they did lower their tar- trade and tar- they did lower their tariffs. But as soon as they lowered their tariffs, they increased their value out of taxes. Um, right. You, know, you look at right. China. So, you know, so China, I understand. Okay. So, yeah. so Brian, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to cut you off. I'm, I'm really liking to talk yeah, to you, and I ahead. don't want to discourage a first-time caller. But now I do understand more of, of where you're coming from, which is you have more of a utilitarian moral perspective, where you're looking out for kind of the greatest good for the greatest number, and the moral perspective that I'm coming from will say um, that it is not moral to enforce any sort of trade barriers or restrictions. The only way that I would enforce a trade restriction is I would not have us trading with our enemies. I think that if you are a business here in the United States and you are trading with our enemy, so Iran or maybe today Syria because we've got ISIS maybe in control over there, um, you know, if you're trading with them, then you are helping our enemy, right? So I think yeah, that that yes. would be wrong. Um, so so otherwise, I don't see initiating force against anyone who just freely wants to trade with other people, even if you could prove, which I don't. I think it would be hard to do anyway, but even if you could prove that you could improve the greatest good for the greatest number by enforcing trade restrictions, I don't think so. The other thing is, you know, in economics class, you learn that even if, the other country, if there's only two countries in the world and country B, you know, erects all these trade barriers and you keep everything free, you're still going to do better off by keeping free trade because you're going to be able to get things at least that much cheaper. And then you can have people in your country specialize at those things at which they have the comparative advantage, et cetera. So, 
In any event, I do thank you for your call, Brian. I thank you for calling in. And if you listen and call in again, I'll, I'll definitely appreciate it. I'm going to get on. I've got this insanely ambitious list of program notes that I want to get to more of, okay? Well, thanks for taking my call. You have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Okay, let me see if I can get a um, get a little bit into these notes here. So, oh, oh, I did want to mention this other story too. So, I mentioned the NASA the mass gains of Antarctic ice sheet is greater than the losses. So, you know, contra the global warming alarmists, it hasn't happened. We are actually in, you know experiencing an increase in Antarctic ice. Gina McCarthy who I guess is the head of the EPA, is wanting to, in the name of global warming, of course, confiscate your air conditioners. It says the EPA chief, I've got this from Hot Air, EPA chief Gina McCarthy wants the world to stop using hydrofluorocarbons and air conditioners and other consumer products as part of Barack Obama's plan to fight global warming. She's so determined to make this happen that she's taking the lead role at an ongoing United Nations summit to expand the current global treaty covering ozone-depleting substances. The EPA chief hopes that her agency's recent HFC regulations will convince other countries to join the U.S. in limiting the chemicals. Uh, Quote, solutions are here and it's time to amend the Montreal Protocol to reflect that, end quote, she wrote, adding that phasing out HFCs would, quote, avert 0.5 degrees Celsius of global warming by the end of the century. Now, of course, she's using the same climate models that all these people have been using, and they, you know, obviously are are contentious. They're being disproven by things like this NASA news release. Again, that's NASA releasing this data about the Antarctic ice ice sheet. So, um, but no, she wants to confiscate our air conditioners or at least make air conditioning more expensive by putting restrictions on the materials that we're allowed to use in the air conditioners. I have seen this in California myself. Um, I, I understand that right now they are putting restrictions on the efficiency of the air conditioning unit that you must buy if you're going to replace your existing air conditioning unit, you know, central air unit or whatever, with a new one. It has to be of a certain so-called efficiency. I think they call it 14 sear or 16 sear. It's all this technical jargon. But essentially, they are making it more expensive to get air conditioning, which in some situations is life-saving. <sighs> yeah, in the chat room, Jonathan says, by the end of the century, ha, you know, it's like laughing. I mean, first of all, this idea that you're going to do something now because it's going to do some minuscule thing by the end of the century, that's funny. But the other thing is, here she is asserting that you're going to get this, you know, savings and, you know, changing the climate by half a degree Celsius by the end of the century. Who's going to be around to check her and remember that she ever said it, especially given that we're going towards the 1984 society where no one's going to be held accountable for what they said five minutes ago, you know, regardless of what she said, you know, right now it's 85 years before the end of the century. We're not going to be able to check her on her assertion until 85 years from now. So, yeah, it is. It's pretty funny. Rob in the chat room says, yeah, they've already ruined washing machines and refrigerators. Yes. Yep. Making it all more expensive to use this life-saving, life-enhancing, life-extending uh, 
technology that is, you know, again, powered by fossil fuels. By the way, I don't know if you've seen, I've seen it only on Twitter. It might be other places as well, but Chevron has been putting these ads out on Twitter along the theme of doers doing. And they talk about the fact that if people are doing all these great things out there, they're building this and they're inventing that and, you know, they're exploring this. If they're doing it, it requires energy. The idea that it requires energy to do great things that human beings do. And it's called Doers Doing. It's a great little ad campaign. I usually would never retweet an ad on Twitter. I mean, the idea, you know, you go and retweet stuff that is good. I retweet those ads. It is the only ad on Twitter, I think, that I've ever retweeted. Maybe I retweeted something for Sprinkles Cupcakes once or something. I don't know. But it's the ones that I actually feel passionate about, these doer doing ad. I I wrote to Alex Epstein and I said, did you have something to do with this campaign? Because it sounds exactly like something that he would encourage. And he said, no, nothing directly. But, you know, of course, he's out there, I think, influencing the culture and influencing the willingness of these companies, Chevron, ExxonMobil, et cetera, to defend themselves on moral grounds, to say, look, we provide energy that allow doers to do things. It's fabulous. So just trying to give you a little bit of good news in with all the, the bad news. We have some companies out there using their money to spread ideas that are along the right track even though in general you could say there's in some places this trend towards censorship, in some places you see kind of you know a, a better direction. And in energy is generally one of those things. I sure hope that Hillary Clinton and her ilk are not going to be able to shut down these companies from defending themselves. I don't think they have any legal leg to stand on, and I think the companies probably can use the resources they're no longer giving to Clinton's global initiative and they can use that to defend themselves in court, and it's for a much better cause. I'd much rather see attorneys get that money than Hillary Clinton get that money, especially if it's in defense of of the good. So let's see, another place where we are being sold a bill of goods in kind of the media and in the culture generally is with respect to Obamacare. I saw this. I think, was it just this morning? Yeah, it was just this morning. David Brooks in the New York Times, the opinion page, has a short little piece. The headline is, Great News, We're Not Doomed to Soaring Health Care Costs. And then what he says in here is that if you look at health care prices, that's the way he phrases it very carefully, health care prices, then health care prices have grown at an annual rate of 1.6% since the Affordable Care Act was enacted in March 2010. And the person who he's quoting, Jason Furman, he's the president of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. He gave this speech, so he's quoting him. Um, The the quote continues, um, this is the slowest rate for such a period in five decades. So this 1.6% over five years the slowest rate for such a period in five decades, and it says, and those prices have grown at an even slower 1.1% rate over the 12 months ending in August 2015, end quote. So Brooks is trying to make it seem as everything's hunky-dory, Obamacare is working, look, health care prices are going down, and so therefore, in some really corrupt, insanely finagled uh, government calculation, 
they are actually reducing the amount of cost that they're projecting that's going to be devoted to spending on health care in the future. You know, so he says, look, it's all it's going to be so wonderful. Um, let me see if I can get you the uh, the statistic that he put out there. It was, you know, basically projecting way into the future. Somehow we're going to be spending less on some bizarre government calculation. But here's the deal, right? So he says healthcare prices increase at a rate of only 1.6%. I know by posting my own experience on Facebook and I know also by talking with other people on Facebook who are responding to it that again this year health insurance rates are increasing in the double digits, the rates of, you know, the monthly premiums. So for example, Mine, if I stick with the plan that I had, is going up 13%. Last year, I was told that if I wanted to stick with the plan that I had, the rate would go up 12%. And I actually jumped plans to a somewhat cheaper plan. Now, that somewhat cheaper plan is now going to be increasing at a rate of 13% if I want to keep it into the next year. And at the same time, many of the coverages are modified such that, you know, the... um, maybe like the the office visit pay for in certain ways goes down but then for specialists it goes up and then the um the deductible goes up somewhat all these changes that basically make me get less for more money so my question for someone like brooks is if i'm going to be paying 13% more it's an increase in price for this insurance and you know what is insurance is Insurance now is supposedly basically prepaid health care, right? You are buying a bunch of health care that the government is requiring you to buy. And plus, you're, you know, it's a combo of insurance and prepaid health care. So for that package of insurance and prepaid health care, I'm going to be paying 13% more if I keep my plan in this upcoming year. And yet he's saying that the price of health care is going up only 1.6%. And my question for you is, where's the difference? Where is that going? And, I mean, there's one possibility, which is that the insurance companies are just trying to all soak us all. But we know that that's not going on because the insurance companies are barely allowed to charge enough to stay in business these days. They are heavily, heavily regulated. Plus, that there are at least a few insurers in any given market. They are competing with each other. So if they were all trying to do this, I mean, they would have the incentive for one of them to go ahead and cut prices. So I doubt it's, you know, going into some CEO's pocket, for example. Um, That leaves a couple things. One, it's going to the cost of the bureaucracy required to make sure that those prices that Brooks can brag about stay at, you know, only 1.6 inflation rate per year, right? So the bureaucracy required to achieve the, quote, miracle of reducing healthcare prices. Second, you know, again, prices are one thing, right? But then you talk about costs. You know, you you have prices, you have a bunch of more people in the market being subsidized, et cetera, Um you're also going to have to have rationing. And so the bureaucracy is maybe also paying for the rationing. So part of my 13% increase is going to pay for the increase in rationing and also the price control. So there's that. And then also it's being used to subsidize the health care of other people. Those are the places that it's going. So I'm paying more. It's being redistributed 
and it's being used in effect to enforce government guns on healthcare providers and insurance companies. He can brag about the 1.6% all he wants, but the news around the country is, and, and go ahead and feel free to call in or talk here in the chat room if your experience is different, the insurance rates, the stuff that we're paying out of pocket, are going up and up and up every single year. Um, I've just got a little story from Hot Air. Uh, thanks to Bosch Faustin. He sent this in. It says, not your imagination, Obamacare premiums shot up by double digits for 2016. So you're supposed to be happy because David Brooks says that health care prices are up only 1.6%, and yet you, out of your pocket, are going to be paying 12 13 15 18% more maybe for health insurance per month than you did last year. They say this may seem redundant given all the attention to huge price spikes in the Obamacare exchanges in states like Minnesota, between 34 to 50% for most plans, and they say in Mississippi, over 60%. Even CBS News has begun to wake up to the rapidly escalating costs of insurance in the so-called Affordable Care Act exchanges. Yet Obamacare advocates argue that these price explosions are localized and not indicative of the overall direction of premium prices. New study shows that the price hikes are not just localized or anecdotal. Megan McArdle picks up on an analysis by Avalair that shows an average 13% increase in the cheapest plans for subsidized mandatory coverage. So what I'm experiencing is average, and that is double digits, and it is way far from the so-called 1.6% of the prices. So that's just one story over at Hot Air. Like I said, go to don'tletitgo.com and you can get all these stories that I'm talking about here today. Um, the other is a story from Breitbart. It says another Obamacare co-op shuts down, amassing more than a 50% failure rate. Consumers Mutual Insurance of Michigan has announced it will be winding down its operation prior to 2016 making it the 12th Obamacare co-op to fail this year. The fact on the insurance uh, insurer's website reads, you will need to purchase health insurance from another company prior to December 15, 2015 in order to have coverage on January 1, 2016. Consumers are also told that as long as they continue to pay their premiums, the co-op will handle their claims through the end of the year. Ha ha. Uh, we'll see how well they end up doing that. Um, I read another story, and I'm not sure if I stuck it in here, but that in Texas, there are plans that are no longer covering cancer treatments at the MD Anderson Hospital in Houston, and that it's getting increasingly difficult to get any kind of healthcare plan that covers those treatments for cancer patients. So, you know, you, I, Brooks can brag, but everywhere we are seeing the carnage that is Obamacare. Uh, it's out of our pockets. It is out of you know people's health, literally. Some people are not being able to continue their treatments unless they pay, for example, $10,000 out of pocket per month for cancer treatments, and this is terrible. In, uh, in the chat room here, John says, and now they're scheduling physician's assistance in place of doctors. Yes, yeah, sometimes they are. Now, sometimes PAs are really, really good, and they have a lot of experience. And, you know, I've, I've dealt with PAs who are great. 
but this idea that it's going to be mandatory to have these people who may not have, you know, the expertise in, in charge of your health care, there's, there's that phenomenon as well. Another thing that we are trying to, you know, get our minds around and, and the media is telling us one thing, or at least certain media outlets tell us one thing when really the other is true, is the jobs report. The October jobs report came out, and New York Times has two different headlines one is strong growth in jobs may encourage the Fed to raise rates. Because remember, you know, the Fed is just waiting to raise the rates, but they need to have enough growth in the so-called jobs reports before they feel that they can do this. A story at New York Times, November 6th, says that you have got in the jobs report a 271,000 jump in payrolls and that somehow this was much more than expected. It was much more robust than expected. And so, therefore, the economy probably has enough enough strength to allow the central bank to actually move away from zero-level interest rates. Of course, you shouldn't speak too soon because these jobs reports are always modified the next month and they're usually downgraded. But in any event, it's all based on these expectations. It's the subjective expectation in the mind. It doesn't have anything to do with real numbers. And in fact, if you go to another headline at the New York Times, they say the October jobs numbers are a big relief. What's the truth? The truth, go over to the Business Insider if you want to hear an actual kind of non-context-dropping perspective on this. Their headline about the same jobs report is that the labor force participation rate stays at a 38-year low. So you can talk all you want about whatever you use to measure numbers of jobs added and how that compared to the, quote, expectations, because that's all it is. It just, how does it compare to expectations? When you talk about the labor force participation rate, the people who are of the age and physically capable and such of having a job and choose not to, right, uh, or how many choose to participate, that rate of participation is at a 38-year low. They say October jobs report was full of good news with non-farm payrolls dramatically beating expectations, average hourly earnings growing at a faster rate than any time since the Great Recession. Hmm, I wonder if that's due to minimum wage mandates, right? So meanwhile, the labor force participation rate remains at its 38-year low with just 62.4% of American civilians over the age of 16 either working or looking for work. So it remains at the same 38-year low. So much for that, right? Now, I do have a caller. I'm going to go ahead and grab it. Hi, who's this? Hello, hi, you're Tom. on the air? Oh, hi, Tom. Yeah, uh, yeah, hi. Um, you mentioned one and only one of the 97%. There's another 97% you didn't mention. Which is? Uh, for, for, I guess, generations, it's been known that there appears to be an 11-year cycle and a 22-year cycle and a 60- to 72-year cycle in the sun's change. Well, what recent... Uh, Physicists, uh, uh, physicists have determined is that there is a cycle in the upper half of the sun and a different cycle in the lower half of the sun. And 
their corresponding uh, their calculations correspond to ninety seven percent accuracy with the past. Okay. Okay. And so what they have what I've been reading for years suggesting, but which they now say uh, they've actually determined and can prove, is that we're going toward a Mayander minimum. Which was that period? Of oh time right, yeah, I remember. I, I remember reading an article about that, and in fact, um, I think I was publishing something about that at my blog, and and that Deborah Sloan helped me with some of that as well. Um, Tom, I do need to uh, move on to a different topic. I'm sorry okay. to to cut you off like that, yeah. just because I've, I I do okay. I don't know if you checked out if you checked out the list of program notes, you know that I am insanely behind at this moment, but I do thank you for your call. And it is true that there are other things that people do need to be checking out in terms of global warming. And that's why it is so important that we, right now particularly, do not have our government using legal force, you know, legal force, yeah, legalized force, right, using the force of government. And certainly we shouldn't have a presidential candidate calling for litigation investigation, potential prosecution of companies for expressing an opinion on an issue like this about which there is a ton of reasonable debate and that there is no consequence. I mean, they're, they're just putting ideas out there. Um, they're selling the you know fossil fuels, the products of fossil fuels. People can choose whether or not to buy them. They don't have to agree with a company's stated position on this, right? If I go buy bacon... Right, I I don't have to agree with whatever the bacon companies. I mean, I happen to like bacon and think it's good for you, but um, you know, if, if the bacon company the, themselves, the president is a paleo fanatic, and he puts all this paleo literature out there and stuff, you know, I can read that and I can read the counterpoints and think for myself and decide what to believe. Why not let a company put out there its own point of view about defending its product? It's not like you're going to be able to prove fraud about such a contentious issue like this anyway. If you can prove fraud, okay, fine. But this idea that, you know, you don't agree with the government point of view and so therefore you are for sure guilty of fraud, very, very, very dangerous in today. Um, I skipped over a story earlier that I just wanted to show you in terms of the media increasingly not giving us the truth about the dangers of terrorism, both here and abroad. If you were watching the news uh, yesterday, day before, I think, the at the University of California, Merced, there was a stabbing and four people were stabbed and the attacker was shot by someone who had a gun, thankfully. Yay. Um, but they did not tell you very much at all about the attacker. And it's only... 24 hours later that the information comes out that it was a Muslim, that the uh, Muslim attacker, you know, the, the one who stabbed these four people, that he had on him some sort of manifesto referring to a law and everything else. And increasingly, we're not being told any connection to Islam. Um, whenever there is a connection to Islam that they have to acknowledge, right, because the person praised Allah in their manifesto or whatever, what are, we, what are we told? We're told that authorities are searching for a motive, that they don't really know the motive, that if they mention and praise Allah when they're doing these violent things, that's just equivocal. It's just like you know anybody else invoking Jesus when they make a big decision in their lives. That was what one of these guys said. So 
it is something you need to be aware of that when there is a violent act like this and they tell you very little or nothing about the attacker, keep watching the news, right? News cycles are really short, but Jihad Watch is really good at following up. And I think also Robert Spencer is careful. He doesn't come out and say, oh, it's, you know, for sure terrorism or something. He waits until there's evidence. But then if there is evidence of it, he will publish it. So go to Jihad Watch and, and follow things like that. And then you can see if there really is some kind of a connect, connection or not. Another thing is this bombing of the Russian jet over Egypt. We have our president saying, oh, you know, it was a possibility that a bomb was to blame in the loss of the Russian jet. And meanwhile, Cameron is saying, we're not flying to Egypt. Why? Because we have seen evidence of an ISIS plot to bomb airliners. Um, but our president, oh, it's, it's a possibility. I mean, he, he can't say that, you know, there's no evidence, right? He can't say there's no evidence because there is some evidence out there. But he certainly doesn't want to acknowledge that terrorism is an actual threat, that he has actually, in his term of office, made the problem worse. So he goes out there and says, oh, you know, it's a, it's a possibility. When you've got both the Russians and the British and the Egyptians also saying this is an actual threat from terrorism, this is probably terrorism that resulted in this crash and that we need to take definite steps to deal with it, that it is a real danger. Obama will not acknowledge that. And he just hopes that, yeah, in the next news cycle it blows over. In fact, if you read that article, the, the headline, again, go to don'tletitgo.com, all these articles there. If you see the one, bomb is, quote, possibility in loss of Russian jet over Egypt, it turns out that Obama was forced to make that comment when he was doing this tour of various radio stations trying to urge people to enroll for Obamacare because, you know, Obamacare is floundering. People do not want to pay these increased rates. They'd rather go without insurance and, you know, maybe court the, you know, the prospect of a penalty or anything else than pay the kind of stuff for the little that you get on these exchanges. So he's out there trying to get people to enroll for Obamacare, Obamacare, that's all he wants to talk about. And then some, you know, radio host dared to ask him about the Russian jet that was bombed over Egypt. And he, well, it's a possibility, you know, we can't we can't rule out terrorism. And that's all he's going to say. Um one thing I wanted to, oh, by the way, in terms of uh, good news out there, a woman speaking her mind, I've got a link to a story from the Daily Surge. A Democrat congresswoman was a guest on Bill Maher's show, and uh, the website is clicking around and showing me 50 billion ads, so I can't find the woman's name. I believe it's Gabbard. And I'm scrolling through and I'm having absolutely no luck here. These websites with their pop-up and weird ads. Um, okay, her name I think is Tulsi Gabbard. And I'm trying to scroll a little bit. She's from Hawaii. And she actually says of the Obama administration that it is essentially working hand-in-hand -hand with the Islamic extremists on the ground in Syria who are working to overthrow Assad so that they can take over and establish their Islamic caliphate, 
end quote. There was a video that the Daily Surge had up. It was a YouTube video. It's been taken down. I assume that if you go uh, to the actual legal HBO clips from Bill Maher that you can you can see this. But, you know, th- this idea that here's the president always, always talking down any threat of terrorism, that you've basically got the media on standing orders to never tell you when uh, an act of violence is due to Muslim terrorism. Again, a culture of censorship. And, you know, it, it prevents us, citizens of the United States, from knowing what truly is a risk to us. And it's good to see a Democrat congresswoman out there giving us a piece of the puzzle that here's Obama working hand-in-hand with them, and that might have something to do with this policy. Now, here's another piece, another article, and you might not necessarily think that it would connect directly to this idea of a culture of censorship, but in fact it does. Thanks to Mark Natickman, Ben Sass has been in the Senate for a year, and he followed the tradition of not speaking in the Senate for the whole entire first year that he was a senator. And then, and during that time, he went and spoke with all the other senators, I guess 98 other senators or something, all of the other ones, I guess 98 of them are more senior than he. And he gave a speech talking about the fact that there needs to be major, major structural change in the Senate in order to not keep getting the same horrible results that we've been getting in the past. And the part of this, there's a uh, passage that I wanted to read to you from the speech that has to do with this topic for today. This is Sass. He says, we all know deep down that the political class is unpopular, not because of our relentless truth telling, but because of politicians' habit of regularized pandering to those who already agree with us. This is the very reductionism, the short-termism that this institution was explicitly supposed to guard against, end quote. And he added, quote, a six-year term is a terrible thing to waste, end quote. And what he's meaning there, remember the the slogan, a mind is a terrible thing to waste? And it was, um, you know, It was an ad I remember asking you to donate for the cause of giving to uh, black children's education, that they have minds and it would be terrible to waste these minds and help them get educated. And here he's saying the senators are supposed to be the more intellectual body, that they're actually supposed to discuss important issues. And in fact, you know, some people were saying, well, he's saying, you know, don't adhere to principles and be polarized and stuff. And he's saying, no, 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 we need to have these debates out in a substantive way in the Senate, and we are not doing it. In fact, everybody's spending their entire six-year term just trying to get reelected, not to address the real issues at stake. So kudos to SAS. SAS is saying there's, in effect, a culture of self-censorship in the Senate. And what are they censored by? They're censoring themselves by the need to get reelected. And he says that's exactly the opposite of what the Senate was supposed to be. The Senate, with a six-year term, they were supposed to be free you know, to deal with more substantive issues in an intellectual way. And they're not doing that. So that is, that is SAS. Okay, so we talked about the... Jobs. Oh, Uber. Let me give you a little bit about Uber. New York Times is trying to shame Uber for defending itself against 
regulation. And if you go to the article, you can see that basically, uh, you know, it, it, it uses language to paint Uber and Airbnb in a very unfavorable light, talking about ethics committees, investigating them because they dare to mobilize people in their defense. They refer to Uber as a behemoth in one place. And let me see what the other language is. I, I forgot it. I was putting it out there earlier this week on my on my Facebook page. But they say that they're a behemoth and that also they cited the fact that they dared to go into cities and start uh, they didn't say dare but I say dare uh, but they you know they would go into these cities to localities and they would start offering their services and and the article says whether the local laws permit them to or allow them to or not right so the new york times wants you to take it for granted that if you come up with some new way to make money that you i mean how dare you try to ply your trade and make some money unless the existing laws expressly permit you to do so. You came up with a new technology? It's so new that they haven't figured out a way to regulate it yet? How dare you? And in fact, like they say, they throw around this language about such and such ethics committee is investigating them and how horrible. And, uh, you know, they are a behemoth. And I forget what the other uh, negative language is that they were using to characterize um, Uber and Airbnb. I wish I could uh, grab it. Okay, well, I am running out of time, so I don't... But yeah, go check out the article. And do, when you look at these, look at the language. You know, again, you're a company. You're trying to make money. First of all, if there's a regulation, you should just accept it. You shouldn't even dare engage in trade unless your trade already has an explicit regulation permitting you to do it. And if you happen to defend yourself against regulation, then you're somehow bad. We're going to look askance at you. Uber has been offering horse and buggy rides in Austin to protest regulations, which I think is an awesome answer to people like the New York Times. I've got a whole bunch of other stories over at DontLetItGo.com that I do think you should check out. They're not necessarily on this topic of censorship, but they're likely worth your time, at least look at all the headlines and see if they interest you and then go ahead and click on some of these if you want to. There has been a backlash against the United States in Iran that has gathered force after the nuclear deal. And this is the New York Times calling our attention to it. So kudos to the New York Times. They talk about all sorts of elements within Iranian society that are uh, you know, engaging in this backlash against the United States. In one story, there was a KFC-type restaurant that was forced to close down after just a few days because there was so much outcry that anything associated with the United States would dare open and sell stuff there. Um, feds to pull $6 million from a school for not allowing boys in the girls' showers. I don't want to get into all the stuff about transgender and is this a thing and whatever. All I want to say here is this whole issue of dealing with transgendered persons is a contentious issue, that the government should not be enforcing a certain viewpoint. And in a number of places this week, we learned that federal and local governments are enforcing particular viewpoints about 
the propriety of having transgendered people in different sex, you know, uh, bathrooms or showers or anything else. Uh, This is just one more reason that we need to get government out of all of these decisions, particularly in government schools. It's just another case in which we have the government deciding what your kids are going to be exposed to. And it's a contentious issue. You have to look into it and decide what you think for yourself and whether you want your boy or girl in the same shower as another boy or girl who calls himself transgendered figure it out. But my point is you have the right to do it. Federal government shouldn't be forcing it on us. Obama, in a full display of nihilism, has decided that he will not yield to a company's bid to delay the Keystone Pipeline decision. Everyone knows that Obama wants to kill the Keystone Pipeline, and apparently Obama is determined to kill it before he leaves office. Check that out if you're interested. Um, The Great Exorcism Boom, that's just a horror story. Click on it if you want. It's from a Catholic news outlet. Uh, Jerry Brown's oil scandal is an impeachable offense. You may want to read up on Jerry Brown. French kids don't have ADHD. They don't give the drugs to the kids in France like they do here. It might be worthwhile looking at. If you're interested in antibiotics, like I became recently, you can look at the story about the FDA recommending label changes on popular antibiotics. Um, The label changes are probably well advised, even though I don't, of course, agree that the FDA should exist. I think this information should be out there. Um, The good news. The good news is at the bottom of the program notes at DontLetItGo.com, And it's stuff from Ted Cruz that we've seen this week. He has a tax plan that would make all of our lives easier and allow for a lot more economic growth from all indications. And, of course, we have to remember that Ted Cruz is uh, in favor of abolishing not only the IRS plan, but also the EPA. And the EPA is the source of a lot of this growth-killing regulation. So do go check out the tax plan if you haven't heard the news about that already. So I am sorry to give short shrift to some of these stories in the later, but I did get through all of mine on the censorship theme. Hope you like the show. If you want to continue the discussion, go to DontLetItGo.com or you can follow me on Facebook or Twitter and share the show if you're enjoying it. And um, those of you who are donating to the Butter Coffee Fund, I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, and I will talk to you very soon. I guess we're going to try to tweet the debate on Tuesday. So take care, and I'll talk to you next time. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.